Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty well. Uh, I feel like we have a packed show today. Uh, We have an opinion that came down this week that we're going to get into, as well as an important filing um, in the DACA case that we've been following. We also have an interview with Kate Stetson. Uh, She's the co-chair of Hogan Lovell's appellate practice. Uh, And we want to talk with her uh, just a bit about what it's like being an appellate lawyer right now in the middle of the pandemic, Um, especially, you know, as the Supreme Court is shut down as circuit courts across the country kind of have different uh, scheduling issues. Um, So we want to just check in and see what type of effects uh, that can have on the practice. Uh, Before we get into that, though, Jimmy, uh, you are a minor Twitter celebrity now (laughs) after your big scoop on RBG. Uh, Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that uh, story? Sure. Yeah. So we've been reporting about, you know, the ongoings of the justices under quarantine, essentially, and how the court is adapting to life in the time of, you know, coronavirus. Um, So I reported on Tuesday that uh, Justice Ginsburg had been sticking to her um, twice-weekly workout schedules during the pandemic. Um, uh, Her trainer gave me an interview on Tuesday and and basically said that uh, the justice ain't having it, and he had canceled all his other appointments, and they were taking precautions, but yeah, it definitely... um, Kind of spread like wildfire once once the news broke that uh, uh, RBG was sticking to her famous uh, workouts of you know planks, push-ups, and other things just to stay fit. Uh, the Supreme Court actually released a statement yesterday con- uh, confirming that she had indeed had a you know a private space set aside for her in the Supreme Court building where she was working out. Uh, um, I think uh, the court said that it that her doctors had deemed it essential for her health. It did kind of spark some backlash and some criticism um, when the story hit um, on Tuesday evening uh, from a lot of progressives who are very cagey about the idea of uh, Justice Ginsburg, you know, continuing to work out in a gym, even one that's um, limited in access. Uh, they they want to see her essentially hermetically sealed until this whole <laughs> thing passes over. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a fascinating update. Well, I do hope she she continues to to take precautions, as do the other justices. Uh, you know, during this uh, fraught period, um, I know she's she had been uh, going to the court. Just Justice Chief Justice Roberts, uh, as I think you mentioned, Jimmy, last week. You know, has been. Uh, spearheading the conferences from the courtroom while everyone else uh, dials in. Um, although everyone seems to be doing it in a different way. Uh, there was a report uh, recently, uh, Justice Breyer is uh, up in Massachusetts, uh, I believe, and he's uh, doing some pot roast and kind of just tucked <laughs> away. Uh, in yeah, his he home. gave a really fun, he gave a really fun interview to um, the Wall Street Journal where he basically went into extreme detail about his pot roast recipe as well as you know the the movies he had been watching and the books he's reading i don't think it'll surprise like people who know justice Breyer to know that yeah there's definitely a few french films on the on the list <laughs> he's our he's our resident francophile at the at the supreme court so they all seem to be doing it in different ways uh but they're all still working um you know the court is is still kind of moving ahead we had um, an opinion come down this Monday. It was uh, a 7-2 decision uh, involving a maritime law where the justice basically read this contract clause to say three Sitco units uh, have to pay for a $133 million oil spill in Delaware that was caused by an anchor kind of ripping into one of uh, a tanker's hull. Um, but 
the, I think the biggest news from that opinion was actually just the tech issues because the site went down. Uh, I couldn't quite handle the Supreme Court reporters uh, trying to remotely uh, access the opinion. Yeah, it was. It, everyone was kind of s- circling around their computers at 10 a.m. on Monday because you know we had advance notice that the opinions were coming down, and uh, it was I think a, a pretty frantic 10 minutes before the actual um, PDF ruling was uh, functional on its website, um, leading to a lot of consternation on the part of the Supreme Court press corps trying to figure out you know what exactly the court ruled. Luckily, you know, it, I'd say it's a little bit on the less high profile of cases this you know the federal maritime law dispute uh between these companies um but uh one one uh supreme court reporter tweeted you know imagine if this was title seven day you know referring to the blockbuster cases um about uh you know gay and transgender rights in the workplace yeah that would have been a nightmare for a lot of newsrooms around the country what did the court rule Let's hope that does not come to that. <laughs> Let's no. hope they get those uh, those funds from the stimulus package to the high court pretty quickly to to bolster their their website capabilities. Um, the coronavirus, though, is impacting some high profile docket cases. Uh, on Friday, advocates for uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program asked the justices they, they they sent a letter and they asked them to consider the consequences of ending the program in the midst of the pandemic since about 27 thousand DACA recipients are actually healthcare workers you know who are on the front lines of treating the, the virus right now um, so as, as some of our listeners might recall we, you know, we talked about how there were arguments in November and during the arguments, the conservative majority seemed to be leaning towards letting the Trump administration repeal the program, um, which Council for DACA, you know, is saying would be a real hardship right now uh, to impact the healthcare system by ending the program in the midst of the pandemic. So they're asking the court to either, you know, at least keep the potential impact in mind, uh, to consider perhaps additional briefing, or to even consider the possibility of remanding the issue back to the agency to reconsider its decision to terminate DACA in light of the public health emergency. It wouldn't be the first time that, you know, changing circumstances after an oral argument has kind of affected the, the way a Supreme Court, you know, rules in the case. Uh, so that's a lot of news. Uh, let's get to our interview with uh, Kate Stetson about how the coronavirus pandemic is actually affecting the world of Supreme Court lawyers and appellate litigators. Today we have Kate Stetson, co-director of Hogan Lovell's Appellate Practice Group, member of the firm's global board, and a veteran litigator who is headed to having 100 arguments under her belt. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you and, and to hear, you know, your your view on being an appellate litigator, um, especially right now, you know, obviously top of mind and I feel top of all discussions uh, lately has been the coronavirus and how that's impacting all corners of the industry and the world. Um, how has the pandemic been impacting your appellate practice? What have been some of the challenges? Well, I think, I mean, speaking from the most immediate perspective, I am talking with you right now from my standing desk, which I have created on top of my washing machine uh, in my laundry room. This is now my, like, uh, my center of business. Um, You know, the the impact that it's had, I think, on on the substantive stuff is that we, we have seen, of course, courts pushing some deadlines 
The interesting thing, though, is I, I have a couple oral arguments coming up that are still on the calendar, um, one in the D.C. Circuit and one in the Federal Circuit. And I expect that both of those are likely to go forward telephonically, which will be a new experience. So in terms of things falling off the calendar on the appellate side, that hasn't really happened. Um, the big impact, I think, just in a day-to-day -day sense is I really miss my colleagues. Um, I think sometimes appellate lawyers get a bad rap as being kind of cave-dwelling hobbits, but we're not, in fact. Uh, we are a very social people, and we like to, we, we're in and out of each other's offices all the time, and I really miss them. So we have cocktail hours every Thursday night on Zoom. Uh, so, like <laughs> so you're saying there's more to the practice than just long hours of writing briefs and <laughs> marking them up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. How, how has the prep, though, I mean, you, like you said, you're, you're still planning to have these oral, oral arguments in a few weeks. Um, how has the, the differences impacted how you prep for them? You know, I don't think there's too much different in the way that I prep because I, I actually end up doing a lot of prep from home, as you can imagine, kind of on nights and weekends as it is. And the prep is so... Uh, that is kind of solitary and very paper-based. So I've got what I need here in front of me to prepare for those arguments. Um, you know, I, I think what will be different and more difficult is I always have at least one moot and sometimes two before I do an argument. Um, I'm going to have to do those either by Zoom or on the phone. And you know, just as with the actual arguments where it's going to be a huge issue, something really gets lost when you can't be in the same room with someone, with the judges or with the people who are asking you questions and get from them the kind of immediate sort of real-time body language, eye contact feedback that you really need when you're an appellate lawyer. I suppose, Kate, that you, you can't really say just yet because you haven't actually done an oral argument, right, telephonically, is, is that right? Or have you had one before? I have done, I've done portions of appellate okay. arguments telephonically. I've had a couple where there's been one judge on the telephone, but a couple others in person. So I've had the hybrid experience, but not the full telephone. So I'm wondering if you think that there's anything that the Supreme Court could learn from maybe the willingness of some of these circuit courts to hold these arguments telephonically. I mean, I, I've talked to some appellate lawyers who say, you know, it's better than nothing, and if they really want to avoid a situation where, you know, a court just in the absence of a public oral argument just takes something on the briefs. Is there anything that the, the justices can learn from the D.C. Circuit, for instance? Well, you know, I, I think the, the, the issues that the circuit courts are having now with trying to do telephonic arguments, obviously multiply them by three in the Supreme Court. Um, I think the issue too, it kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. I feel like that, that court and not, not everybody maybe knows this, but when you're in the Supreme Court, you are, you are right up with those justices. It is not some cavern. It's pretty intimate. Yeah. It, is, it is. And I think for both the justices and the advocates, I actually think that's an important part of the exchange is being able to get, as I was saying a minute ago about the appellate courts, that immediate real-time feedback about how the argument is progressing, how different justices are reacting to other justices' questions, all of those things. It's so hard to do that over the phone, particularly when, as is usually the case, there's a lot of jumping in and interrupting. So, uh, you know, I, I think I would far rather have the court hold arguments in some way 
than just decide everything on the briefs. I think something really would be lost there. But I'm hopeful that we can get back into some mode where there is some more personal interaction, at least in another month or two. I know you mentioned that it so far hasn't really hit the appellate court schedule, perhaps as bad as it has some of the lower court schedules. Um, We've seen, obviously, though, with the Supreme Court, they're they're at least so far on hold. Um, Do you think the coronavirus will have, though, a long-lasting impact on the pipeline of appellate and particularly Supreme Court cases uh, in the long run? You know, I, my my usual uh, thought when I think about a really bad time in the market or a really bad time kind of financially is that the common trope, the common saying is litigation does great during bad times in the market and corporate's the one that suffers. This bad time, I think, is unlike any other time that any of us alive have really experienced. Um, so I, I don't know how it necessarily is going to play out for the litigation pipeline. The one thing I would say about Supreme Court cases, though, is, you know, th- those are the cases that probably in the long run are least likely to be affected by this, just in terms of uh, uh, sort of volume and importance and relevance, because these are, by and large, either criminal cases, and that's not going away, cases where the solicitor general needs to seek review, and those aren't going away. And then the kind of high stakes, bet the company, bet everything you have cases that a lot of the private uh, litigators are bringing, and those definitely aren't going away. So I think you may see a kind of air pocket in the district court proceedings, perhaps, more choices being made about what to bring and what not to bring. But I don't think the funnel to the court is gonna really slow up too much. Speaking of cases that are uh, eventually might make their way to the court, can you kind of tell us, Kate, about uh, the litigation that you're involved in in the D.C. Circuit about um, the the uh, reversal of the moratorium on federal executions and just kind of set that case up and what's at stake for us? Sure. Um, this is this is a case with a very unusual subject matter, obviously, but it, it also happened to be right in my kind of wheelhouse, which is one of the reasons that I joined the great team that has been litigating this for a long time. Um, But the issue has to do with the the attorney generals having issued a new federal execution protocol. Um, The protocol was issued without notice and comment, which in administrative procedure world is generally a no-no. And it also conflicts, we say, with the statutory directive about what the attorney general can and can't do by way of following through with execution protocols. So this was a very volatile subject matter, but it is a classic in many respects, uh, administrative procedure case with all of those arguments wrapped into it. Kate, you're also headed to um, another high profile case. And actually, I I think it's going to be your 100th argument on April 17th. uh, If if uh, the pandemic doesn't kind of delay things uh, at some point here in the D.C. Circuit, uh, quite a milestone. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that case as well? And, and, you know, how much weight do you put on benchmarks like this, uh, you know, reaching 100 arguments? Um, You know, in terms of the benchmarks, I I, I, I don't know that I put a lot of weight on it. I think I... I'm a little bit perplexed as to how it happened, honestly, because I don't feel like I've been around that long. Um, But, you know, part of part of what gives me a lot of happiness about that is, you know, I've been at Hogan Lovells my entire career. I came here after clerking. 
Um, and so those arguments that I've gotten have been because my colleagues and my clients sort of trusted me and knew me enough to bring me those opportunities. Um, and it's, you know, that, that I think means something, that, that kind of momentum behind being in private practice and being frankly a woman in appellate practice and having that uh, degree and range of experience is, is meaningful. I don't know that the number itself is meaningful, but certainly the way that I got there, I think means something. Um, the argument on the 17th, which I, I hope will go forward, even if just by the telephone, is a DC circuit argument. And I, I like that too, because that is a court that I consider to be sort of the place that I feel the most comfortable and at home. It is a classic administrative procedure argument. It's a complex regulatory case involving uh, payments to hospitals and um, you know, a lot at stake for our clients, about $600 million on the line. And uh, it's gonna be one of those, those shin kicking administrative procedure arguments. Well, it'll be interesting uh, to, to see it, uh, to hear how it goes uh, through, especially if it ends up being a, a telephonic argument. Uh, you know, you started um, as an associate at Hogan Levels. Um, well, back then, I believe it was uh, Hogan. Hogan and Hartson. Yes. Hogan and Hartson. That's right. Um, and, and Chief Justice Roberts was then a partner of the firm. And I, I understand a, a mentor to you. What can you tell us about the Chief Justice personality or, or how he tackles legal issues? What do you keep in mind when you end up arguing before him? Um, so a couple different things, I think. When, when I think about the Chief Justice's personality or you know, maybe the legal persona and the way that he goes about thinking of cases, the one thing that I come back to, and I feel like very, very few people actually have this ability, the Chief Justice has the ability to see the entire field of things from, from very abstract doctrines all the way down to details and pragmatic and practical implications of things. There are some very smart people who are all about the abstract doctrines, but who don't have that sense of details and logic and real life implications. The chief does, uh, the, uh, Elena Kagan, I think does, and Pam Carlin, uh, professor at Stanford are the only other two people who I've ever you know, sort of gotten to know who have that capability. So that's the that's the way that I think he approaches cases is from everywhere uh, because he's got that completely in the round intellect. Um, in terms of what I learned from him, and this is something that I actually really miss, the chief would edit my um, my draft briefs for him by hand, and so what that meant was as I was inputting those edits, it gave me that opportunity in real time to say, ah, I, I see why he's doing this. Like this has more punch if you put it here, this is just extraneous. And to have that almost tactile teaching about how to write, I think is incredibly effective. And now that we just redline everything and send it you know, around to each other, a little bit of that is lost, which is, which is hard. Um, as for how I feel when I argue in front of him, the one thing that I tell myself is, it, this this is a man who mooted me a couple times uh, before he left for the court. So I, I'm familiar with him. It's the eight other people that I really just know. pretend like you're mooting, and then it all goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just with the eight other people on the line. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on and kind of telling us about how this uh, 
very scary pandemic has kind of affected your practice and, you know, good luck going forward with everything. Thank you so much. Happy to talk with you guys. Thanks, Kate. Well, that's our show for today. Uh, Thanks so much to me. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Lauren Berg and Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.